Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio, where we will be talking to Dr. Chris Keel about the National Association of Credit Managers Credit Managers Index, very similar to the PMI. The CMI comes out right at the end of a month, and we like to talk to Chris to find out if the credit man- manager's blood pressure is up or down, Lou. <laughs> well, it's been a rough uh, it's been a rough month or so. So, uh, uh, Dr. Chris, uh, I'd like to know which part of the human anatomy you are a doctor of, uh, but we could do that off air. So that, that's right. Uh, that's right. That's right. I don't have. <laughs> let's put it this way. I'm I'm not the useful kind of doctor. Um, I'm the one that when people are are discussing their various ailments, all I can do is draw them a graph to show them how much it hurts. Um, so that's 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 it. But as far okay. as the blood pressure of of credit managers, well, in the first place, it's always high uh, because these are the people <laughs> who are constantly wondering if they're going to get paid. Um, the mantra within the credit managers world is, it's not a sale until we're paid. So they're they're the relentless foes of the sales force on most occasions. But right now, the thing is, is they're fairly confident about the the coming recovery. Now, they still think that that's probably towards the beginning of next year, more than it's likely to be this year. But the numbers have been fairly consistently high in the positive category. As those of you who have listened to this before are aware, we have two different categories. We have the favorables and the unfavorables from the perspective of a credit manager. The favorables are things like sales and dollar collections, applications for credit, and the amount of credit extended. Those were the ones that absolutely collapsed at the beginning of this crisis. So back in March, April, they were terrible. You know, We have the same uh, diffusion index that the purchasing manager's index has, So anything over 50 is expansion. Anything under 50 is contraction. We had gone from numbers in the 60s to numbers in the 20s when you go back to those months. They have steadily improved. They began to come back in May, got back into the 40s. But by the time they got into July and August, they were into the 60s. So those numbers are quite good. And those are the ones that are pointing in a more forward direction. The unfavorables are things like accounts out for collection, disputes, bankruptcies, slow pays, um, rejections of credit applications, things that make a credit manager sad. Those were not a big problem in March, April, May because there really hadn't been time. If you had terms, you had 60, 90, 120 days to pay, so you weren't going to be in trouble right away. You were going to start seeing problems probably by August, September. And sure enough, that's when those began to turn. So the unfavorables now are the problem that credit managers are dealing with. They are seeing more accounts out for collection. They're seeing a little bit more bankruptcy activity. The numbers are not really, really low, but they've gone from being in the 50s to maybe the mid to high 40s. 
which is not unusual. We've had numbers that low many times before. So it's not a crisis situation, but it's basically indicating that businesses that were doing okay are now doing much better. Businesses that were struggling are now really struggling and maybe headed for for more more downturn as as time goes on. The thing we'll watch from the next month or so on is the retail stuff. We have a lot of retail respondents, and this is the time of year that they're either going to see good numbers or bad ones. And traditionally, we begin to see a lot more bankruptcy activity right around December 1st of January when retailers don't quite get through the holiday season in the shape they would want to. So, Long story with a long response, looking more positive, not dancing in the streets positive, but expecting a much stronger fourth quarter than they saw in either, of course, second quarter or third. Chris, I have to ask you, I've I've been in the industrial metals industry for 50 years. Uh, the ISM report, uh, I have pretty much trailed with their numbers. When they say things are good, uh, we're good. And when they say things are bad, we're bad. Now they're saying they're good. You're saying they're good. And I hear this whole past week, and I don't know if that had anything to do with the uh, presidential uh, debacle, I'm sorry, debate, um, that I'm hearing the word recession. Well, we've been in a recession pretty much all year. So the recession that we're in the midst of is, it's still a weird one. It's still one that is more manufactured than anything else. And it's very, very dependent on what we do as far as the lockdown is concerned. So we still have numbers that are not going to compare favorably to what they were last year. And I think that's the, the, major lesson people have to grapple with when it comes to statistics. Whether you're talking about the PMI or the CMI, they're comparing to last month. So when you see numbers go up, it's like, hey, it's better than it was in July. It's better than it was in August. Does it mean that it was better than it was last August? No. If you compare year over year, everything still looks pretty bad. And it's going to probably be first quarter of next year before the number is even out to a point that you can really make some confident assessments about where the economy is because we had such a huge drop in second quarter. No matter how good the numbers looked in third quarter, it's going to be on top of that drop. I mean, I saw one the other day where it was like, wow, we may see 20% growth in the next three months. Well, yeah, you fell 35%. It's kind of like somebody that says, wow, I just lost 10 pounds. Yeah, but you gained 90. Um, So you still have a long way to go. And that's going to be the challenge going forward is to recognize we have short memories. And it's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, like the jobless numbers came out today and it was like, wow, they're better than they were. You know, it's 7.9. Uh-huh. In February, it was 3.4. Um, so 7.9 doesn't look too good compared to 3.4. It looks good compared to 12. So it's it's kind of like 
I'm, I'm reminded of, of money Python bits where people are saying, I'm not dead yet. I'm feeling much better. You know, it's like, yeah, well. <laughs> so so uh, where are we going? Where are we going? We have an election coming up, maybe. I mean, that's, that's, always, <laughs> a, that's always a questionable point. Um, we, we had a, a presidential debacle, I meant debate, uh, this past week. We're going to have a couple more, maybe. Uh, how is that going to all affect the purchasing uh, uh, credit manager's report, the ISM report, the uh, PASS report? I mean, are, are, we, are we all kidding ourselves? No, I don't think so. I think we're seeing, in some respects, the separation between politics and business. And that's a point that I've always tried to to reiterate, because it's not that politics was unimportant, but I've always made the point, especially talking to manufacturers, that most of what matters to them is a lot more local than it is national. You know, not necessarily their markets, but the things that happen at the state and local level are going to affect their labor situation because it's job training that takes place at the state and local level. They're going to be impacted by infrastructure decisions, which are state and local decisions. They're going to be affected by zoning and all the sorts of things that happen in their own neighborhood. So they probably need to pay more attention on who their governor and state representatives are, to be frank. At the national level, it comes down more to Congress than anything else because they're the ones who are going to come up with taxing and spending ideas, and then it gets to the president. And even with this one that we've had for the last four years, there have been a lot of bold moves and bold initiatives which don't pan out because it really isn't in the power of the executive to do these things. We've looked at things like the tariffs and the relationship with other countries at one point, there was a, an overt threat from the White House that if you continue to do business with China, there was going to be a penalty for this. You were going to be sorry that you did. The chamber out of Shanghai, the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, did a poll just to see if anybody was concerned. 96% of the people in that poll said, oh, we're going to do business with China like we've always done. I don't care what he says. That was a business decision. You can be as political as you want to, but we're not here by accident. We're in China for reasons. And a lot of times people feel that the reason people went to China or Vietnam or anybody else is to get away from the expenses in the United States, labor costs, production costs. That's not entirely true. About 80% of people who go to China these days are saying, we're here for their market. You know, it's not that we're producing any cheaper, which we are, but not significantly. We're in China because there's a billion, 400 million people here that we want to sell to, and we're not leaving. So it, it focuses people's attention on business decisions of which politics plays a role, but it's not a huge one. What's odd about the election cycle this year is that we have four of the major countries in the world all experiencing elections or political turmoil at the same time. So we have our election. Angela Merkel has resigned as head of her party. She's in her last year as chancellor. We just saw Shinzo Abe resign in Japan. They have a caretaker in place. 
And even in China, you've got a full-on war going on between two of the Politburo members. Um, and one of them has been trying to pick off Xi Jinping since the moment the guy took office. So all four of the major economies are kind of in limbo as to who their leaders are going to be. So does that affect us? <laughs> it, it does. I mean, it, it affects decisions about trade. It affects decisions about who we do business with. I mean, the U.S. is 15% dependent on exports for its GDP, and that amounts to about 3 to $4 trillion. We're not as dependent as the Germans. They are 50% dependent on exports. Um, Japan, around 17 to 20% dependent. We're nearly as dependent on exports as is Japan. So it matters, you know, what we do with other countries. It matters what kind of trade deals we have. I've done surveys with some of the manufacturers that I work with, and it's, it's astounding, you know, 80% plus do international business. It may not be their dominant part of the business, but they're connected and it matters to them if they're doing business in Europe or Asia or Canada or Mexico. So all of those sorts of things add up. You know, Chris, uh, as you know, I have a, my company, All Metals and Forge Group, uh, and we do uh, import, we do export, and uh, we've been talking with uh, XM Bank, and actually they're going to be on our show uh, within the next couple of weeks uh, talking about uh, if, you're look, if you're a manufacturer and you're looking to do more business because things aren't all that great right here, you might want to be looking to other markets to grow your uh, and expand mm-hmm. your uh, your base. So you should be looking to export. Um, and of course, XM Bank, that's their role to help manufacturers here in the United States who don't have the appropriate funding to do that. So we're looking forward to having that discussion with XM Bank about right. how they're how they're trying to help manufacturers not only the Boeings and the General Electrics, but the small to medium-sized companies who uh, don't necessarily have the appropriate funding and can't get the appropriate funding, and the, and the banks are uh, scared uh, uh, S-list uh, about giving credit to companies that right now are on the verge of closing down because of COVID. So, yeah, you're uh, absolutely right, and, and people often... Un- misunderstand what the Exim Bank does. And it is true that the majority of the money that they have, have organized and expedited has been for the bigger players, the Boeings and the Caterpillars and the like. But the number of businesses that have taken advantage of Exim programs, overwhelmingly, it's small to medium-sized business. They don't, as a rule, request as much money when you're Boeing and you're trying to get someone to buy your airplanes, it's not like it's a $10 deal. It's just, it's like, oh, well, this country wants to buy, you know, 26 Boeings. I think that's going to be 150 quinzillion dollars, you know, so we, <laughs> that's a lot of money. But if you're a smaller company, you know, the way the Exxon Bank works is that you're, you, you're basically helping finance some countries purchase of, of what you're selling. And it's a, it's a great way to promote 
without making it into something that violates world trade rules or any of that kind of stuff, we play a lot fairer when it comes to trade than most other countries. And the Exxon Bank is one of the ways that we do it in a pretty fair and equitable way. And it usually benefits both the the business in the U.S. as well as the American government. So I'm glad you got that, that teed up because people forget how important international is. People still want American products and there's always a demand for them and it's it's a matter of trying to match up that demand with the ability to pay which brings us back to credit managers which is why they really love XM Bank because it's like yeah we're all for sales we're just even more excited about being paid so yeah certainly well, XM Bank takes the risk out because they reassure the bank that they cover 85% of the risk mm-hmm. so that's a nice that's a nice piece for a bank. Uh, they assume that the business can, if they had to, absorb the other 15%, and the bank has zero risk, which is their kind of loan. Yeah, yeah you betcha. But, you know, it's kind of like, wow, this is great. You know, so, and that's, and it was designed to compete with countries that overtly subsidized their exports. This is the kind of stuff that you'll see in China, you see it in Japan, you see it for a lot of European countries where you know, the country is not getting money from the customer. The country itself is saying, here, we'll pay you to send a product overseas. And if, you know, I mean, that's, that's pretty blatant. And the taxpayer in those countries, if they're allowed to complain, would basically say, how come you're giving money <laughs> And, you know, in the case of China, it's like, none of your business. Shut up. We'll spend money any way you like. Um, so we don't live in that kind of a world, thank goodness. But um, the Exxon Bank is our ways to kind of counter that approach. Right. One of the things that, one of the things that uh, I, I've become very aware of, and I don't think a lot of people are aware of it, not that I'm overly bright, but uh, I do know a lot about what's going on in in, in the world of economy, uh, uh, not like you, of course, doctor. But the point is that the Americans are not really export-oriented. It's complex. It's uh, un- uh, uh, it's complicated. It's it's all kinds of things, and they would rather do business with the guy down the block then have to go and do business overseas. They have to go find somebody to sell their product. They have to go find somebody who's going to finance the product. So they choose not to be overly export-oriented. And I think that's that's, a a serious mistake. Yep, that's been very true. And, And it's made worse in many respects. You hear a lot of conversation about bilateral deals and multilateral deals. And Trump was against the multilateral things like the the Pacific Agreement that he scotched as soon as he came into office. The point that I try to make, at least as far as Americans is concerned, the rest of the world kind of likes bilaterals because all they want to do is trade with us. So all they have to do is work out a deal so they can sell to the United States. We want a multilateral approach because the American exporter, there's no country like us. They need to ship to everyone. They need to be doing business in Europe and Latin America and Asia if they want to find a market that's anywhere near our size. 
So the reason we want to promote or should want to promote the multilateral deal is precisely to your point. It's complicated to do business in another country. If every single country has separate rules and every single country has a separate trade arrangement, it's impossible for a small company to figure that out as opposed to saying, okay, everybody else is playing by the same rule. So if I'm in this agreement, I can ship to Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, India, Taiwan, China, Japan, South Korea, Vanuatu, you know, Boogaloo, whoever the hell it is, and they're all playing by the same rule. And now I can Walla, ship Walla, anybody. Washington. That's a big Walla, Walla, Washington is entirely <laughs> its own country. Uh, it has seceded many years ago. People just don't realize it. Um, it it's an independent state. Kind of like Vermont. Vermont became independent. We just weren't paying attention. <laughs> so Chris, Chris, as you speak to people around the country, what what's the most common but most difficult question that you get asked to answer? You know, it kind of it depends on whether they're just in a in a complaining mode um, or if they're seriously <laughs> talking about their business. I mean, honestly, the most common question that I get politically is, you know, where do we get these people? You know, because we look around at at many of the people running for office and we're like, you know, I wouldn't trust that guy as far as I could throw him, and yet he's going to be my representative, my senator, my mayor. You know, I know a hundred people that are smarter than him. Why why am I stuck with this guy? So there's a lot of questioning as to how we how we end up with with who we end up with. But the most serious questions I think are really focused on on business long term. Honestly the most common problem that's brought up at least by manufacturers is labor force. And they said, look, it's the labor supply that keeps us awake at night. We don't have the people coming into the business we need. We have key people in our organizations who are in their 60s and 70s, and we don't know what we're going to do to replace them. Um, We are struggling to hire people who can keep up with the technology. We are struggling to hire people who just have the proper work ethic and it is concerning a lot of these a lot of these companies, and they don't they don't really know who to turn to because there's not much of a pipeline. There are not enough trade schools, there are not enough community colleges, et cetera. Secondarily, I think the the major issue is just simply wanting to better understand the consumer and and to figure out which of these changes that have taken place this year are permanent. Are people really moving away from brick and mortar to online forever? Are people really going to work at home now forever? Um, All those types of of questions are going to affect those companies in terms of what they produce or the people that they sell to produce. I mean, an awful lot of people I talk to are in the automotive sector to one degree or another, and they say, how is this going to affect car demand? And, you know, I don't make cars, but I make that part that goes on the car. And if the cars are weird, then so am I. And that's, and that's, that's the biggest thing that comes out. 
Well, about the uh, the workforce and skill sets and so on and so forth, why doesn't somebody come up with the idea that they came up with about 100 years ago by bringing in immigrants who have skills? I know. Isn't that staggering? I don't mean to talk politics, but <laughs> immigrants is what made this country. Yeah, well, you know, I mean – you look at my last name, and it's pretty obvious that my, my answers came from somewhere. Um, when you have a five-letter name <laughs> and two of them are silent, I mean, come on. Um, it's kind of like this, this is pretty much, a, a you know, the very definition of an unpronounceable German name. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this has always been the the savior of the United States. We've gone through labor shortages in previous generations many times, and every time we've encountered it. Because when you think about how fast this country grew over a 200-year period, it was able to expand as fast as it did because it would take in legions of the Irish and the Italians and the Bohemians and Chinese. I mean, almost everything that you can think of historically. We wouldn't have the railroads if we didn't have the Chinese laborers that came in by the millions. We wouldn't have had the Industrial Revolution in the North without the Irish and the Italians and the like. So we really do need to maintain that, that connection to the rest of the world. And today, we have, we're well aware of the fact that a lot of our technical talent has come from India. It's come from other parts of South Asia. And we're, we did not used to find that upsetting. You know, we looked at it like, that's great. We're the country everyone in the world wants to be in. We're going to get the best and the brightest of the world. What a great deal. The concern even 20 years ago was brain drain. Every country in the world was attacking us saying, quit luring our best people. We're trying to keep them. And we're like, yeah, well, you know, we're a better country. They want to live here. That's beside the point. We want to keep them. It's tough. <laughs> you know, treat them nicely. Um, quit being jerks. And maybe they won't all move. And, but why, you know, but now, so why, are we, why are we deporting them now? I think because we have lost our collective minds, um, either that or, you know, I, I just, that's one of the areas that probably perplexes me the most because almost everyone you talk to, on the one hand, they're very proud of their own immigrant experience. They'll refer back to when their ancestors came and, and, you know, the whole story, everyone knows it, but then they're, opposed to current immigration and it's like well you know if the attitude you have now about immigration was applied to your grandparents you wouldn't be here and and that's i somehow that that gets missed i don't know why how do we convey that to the administration of the moment that this is the way this country was built and that this is the way this uh, country needs to continue to grow and expand by bringing in uh, the, the appropriate type of people that have built this country in the first place. Yeah, I don't know how you convey messages to the powers that be because it's, to some extent, maybe it's a reflection of what they think the voting public thinks. 
but I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I don't. What I run into are people that absolutely adore people from other cultures personally, but have problems collectively. And I've never understood that that kind of disconnect. You know, it's like, well, I have, you know, I love my, my friends who are from Mexico and from China and from the Middle East, but boy, I don't like those Mexicans, Chinese, and Middle Easterners. What? You, what? Yeah. Um, you, you can't, how do you hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time? And and that's that has always perplexed me. I mean, as an economist, I'm lucky to have one thought in my head at any given moment, um, much less two. So. Well, Chris, some years ago, my father gave me the answer to the first question that you are asked. And his answer to politicians was, if you want to run for public office, you've got to be nuts. <laughs> I also like the Will Rogers quote that the very fact that they want to hold the office should disqualify them from holding it. So. <laughs> Well, sum up what, uh, let's see, we've got uh, 90 days ago for the end of this year. What do you think the GDP is going to come out at for Q3 and maybe Q4 as we wrap up here, Chris? Yeah, I think we'll probably see a further decline as compared to last year as far as Q3. Q3 will be better than Q2. Uh, it almost could not help but be better than Q2. Um, but it's not going to recover back to where it was. So I think we'll probably see kind of year over year maybe a 4 to 5% decline compared to a year ago. By fourth quarter, we're maybe going to be getting closer to breaking even. Uh, we may end up with growth compared year over year that is in positive territory, not by much, but maybe a little over 0.5, 0 0.9, something like that. It's going to be, I would think, second or third quarter of next year that we actually see a recovery into what has traditionally been our growth, which is two and a half to three points. So it's it's recovering slowly. It's prop The good news, and this is probably the most important difference between this recession and the one we had in 2008. In 2008, we almost got the W. We had the rapid decline. It came back fast and then fell back again. And it didn't fall as far back as it had been, but it was about a two-and-a-half-point drop. So we nearly got a W, and those are deadly. This time, when we recover, I don't think we'll get the W. We'll recover and then just stay at that rate and slowly bounce back. Predominantly because, again, this has been a weird recession. It's not triggered by anything other than the decision to lock down. So that's the proviso. If we don't lock down again, if the pandemic does not suddenly surge and become more of a problem in the winter than it is now, and we're all sort of sitting around waiting for vaccines. The last word on that is there's 300 possibilities. There are 40 of them that are in human testing, and there's nine that are in stage three. The assumption is that of that nine, some of them will be released um, by the first of the year. And the makers of the vaccines have said, look, we're just waiting for the stage three results. We have already started 
manufacturing those vaccines. We are building them up now. We are going to be ready to release them immediately once the stage three trials are through, but we're not going to release that until then because we want to know if the vaccine itself kills people. (laughs) And And if it doesn't, then we're like, yay, that's a good thing. You know, but if the vaccine says, yes, you are cured of COVID, but you're going to die of something else, that doesn't work. And people don't find that reassuring. Yeah, right. Well, the, the, in the main, one of the main problems that uh, I'm seeing and others are seeing but not acknowledging is that, take, for example, uh, Moderna, uh, Moderna, 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 the farm, big pharma, uh, mm-hmm. according to the existing uh, uh, administration, they're going to come out in the next two, three weeks with a uh, vaccine. Meanwhile, I heard last night uh, uh, while I was uh, busy not watching television but watching Netflix that uh, (laughs) it seems as though that Moderna is saying they're not going to see a solution to the vaccine until the second or third quarter of next year. Yeah, most of the drug makers right now are being very explicit, and and they're saying, look, don't rush us and don't rush this. This is not something that can be done lightly. It can't be accelerated because really the challenge with with the stage three testing, it's the last stage, it gets people excited, but all you can do in stage three is wait. You, you can't accelerate anything. You've got so many days you have to go through while the people are being monitored. You know, so our people improving and if they're not improving then then the vaccine isn't working but you can't know that until you're actually just watching them and seeing what it is that they're that they're experiencing and going through and there's no way to speed that up it just takes as long as it takes well there's also another factor there's also another factor that uh, according to uh, recent uh, polls is that one-third of the population is saying Take the vaccine, not me. Right. One third of the population saying, yep. "I'm not doing that." Yeah, it's it's interesting when people make that statement because in almost every case, once the vaccine is actually released, people say, "Oh well, I've changed my mind," um, because it's presented <laughs> to them in a very direct way, saying, "Okay, fine, don't want to take the vaccine, you're going to get COVID because." the rest of us are going to be vaccined. <laughs> and it's like, suddenly, it, it reminds me of a very old cartoon that was in Playboy magazine years ago that had a, a crusader pointing his spear at a Saracen. And the Saracen is looking up saying, tell me about this Christianity of yours. I'm very interested. Um <laughs> <laughs> So true. Well, Chris, we certainly appreciate, again, you being with us uh, on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is our show of levity, little lightness to uh, some of the topics we usually handle. So we, we appreciate any levity and lightness you can bring to some of these heavy topics. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I've destroyed the reputation of economists worldwide, but thank you for that opportunity. (laughs) 
<laughs> and do apologize to the rest of the credit managers for us not talking a lot about credit managers. But uh, we, we have you on mostly for your sense of humor. Yeah, well, you know, they, they hear enough of me as it is because, you know, they have very own little podcast where I go over the, the CMI and, and I can just I can actually hear the yawning um, from where I sit. So I, I, I enjoy I enjoy so these opportunities. Should, so should we start charging you for being on our show? <laughs> Probably. This is this is therapeutic. You know, this is therapeutic. You know, this is this is the closest I get to you know. It's either that or watching. I mean, honest to God, this week, just in a moment of sheer desperation, I sat around and watched Red Skelton videos for several hours. Um, you know, <laughs> that's good stuff. I like those. Yeah, yeah so do I. <laughs> and then there's Jackie Gleason with the Honeymooners. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, part part of our audience doesn't know what we're talking about. No, but what they ought to do is, is go go to YouTube and look up Red Skelton and John Wayne. They did a skit together, which will have you in stitches. Um, if anybody ever wondered if John Wayne had a sense of humor, oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> um, John, i got to write this one down. John yeah, Wayne and uh, Red Skelton. That's great. Yep. Oh, all right, Chris. Well, we look forward to the happy news you'll bring us just moments before the election next exactly. month. Right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> we'll talk to you later. <laughs> Appreciate it. Right. <laughs> Lou, anything you want to add to this uh, frivolity before we wrap it up? No, actually, I feel uh, mentally and physically a lot better. Uh, after talking with Chris, uh, we didn't really talk a lot about the economy. We didn't talk politics, which everybody knows we don't do. We don't talk politics. <laughs> yeah, right, sure. uh, no one, no one knows our particular beliefs. Uh, at least, no one knows yours. Uh, I'm pretty much <laughs> out there. Uh, no, this is uh, this. This is all seemingly like good news. But I think we're going to have to just wait and see. I think that we have to uh, look at the next three to four to five months and see uh, how all this plays out. No doubt, no doubt. And for our audience, if you want to find out how this plays out, go to jacketmediaco.com, and you can find our six podcasts there, including this one, Manufacturing Talk Radio. The WAM Podcast for Women in Manufacturing and Business, Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, who talks about the economy in manufacturing. Where's Willie with William Miller, who is broadcasting from the production floors of manufacturers as he visits factories. Hazard Girls, which talks about women in unusual roles in industry. And Full Time with Amy Nicholas, speaking on that delicate and difficult work-life balance. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.